I can't believe we got record the fucking show, man. Fucking machine heads in town, man. You know they're you know they're right down the street from me. You know those boys. You know fucking machine head. I remember burn your eyes came out. Fucking ninety four, man. It changed everything, man. Them, them fucking Pantera. You know all those boys. They they took that fucking heavy metal shit and they just made it completely new. You know it was all that fucking uh, that glam shit was still going on, man. You know fucking Molly Crew, I feel good. It came out in like eighty nine, ninety, something like that. But you know the fucking Machine Head boys came in. Yeah, they were they were fucking back to you know back to you know wearing fucking leather, man. They were wearing they were wearing fucking spandex like any of those any of those fucking eighties boys. Let me tell you, no, they were looking they were looking fucking hard, man. They were looking hard, fucking turgid. They were looking strong, vascular, dense, meaty, thick, and. You know, as, as soon as I remember when back fucking 94 burn, burn my eyes came out, I remember seeing those thick fucking boys get on stage, and I was like, my God, this is what I've been waiting for the whole time. Is that what you left mom for? I needed something with more power! Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the high on life of extreme metal podcasts. I am the death metal guy, aka waiting for a girl to walk into the doors of Guitar Center before I start playing the solo from Crazy Train. And I am the black metal guy, aka shit, I sort of thought that the lead-in bit was the AKAs, and... There you go. Your your AKA is just a, a potent feeling of confusion, you know. Yeah. R I P dime. R I P dime. Yeah. Best guitarist machine had ever had. Uh, all right. So we're we're fucking. Hey, you back. stole my joke from before the show. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that was a reserved bit or something. No, no, it was good. It was good. I just wanted to claim. I, 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 that was, that was you see, this is the problem, you, you know, because we've talked about this. You're always like, oh, you're so good at that bit. And I'm like, you got to understand that's half of the conversations that I hear at local metal shows because you don't come from like a big metal town, but I come from a big metal city. So <laughs> I, I feel like the people that you encounter in your local scene are more likely to be like really devoted weirdos and you you kind of don't have all the like random bro types who are just there to be there i mean those people exist but yeah you just don't exactly you don't cross paths paths with them that much also i mean i barely go to shows where i am these days like yeah i haven't been to a show in two fucking years oh jesus man yeah uh, i I mean i I miss it i miss it badly at this point um well, yeah. yeah, well, you just, you don't miss the, uh, well, if you even have him. I don't, don't miss, miss the Pantera Punisher. Yeah, you don't, you don't miss the guy wearing the, uh, the obituary camo trucker hat. Yeah. You know, which I is... think, but, but yeah, if you, if you go only to specialty events, you can, you can bypass that part. Well, you know, that's probably true. But then if you're coming from a place like Tampa, which is like an extreme metal town, the problem is those guys, the five finger death punch guys see that and obituary as sort of interchangeable. You know, there's there's mm-hmm. a deep confusion about where the actual lines of delineation in these styles well, are. Well, don't to be fair, don't you see five finger death punch and obituary is the same thing? <sighs> Later obituary, fucking certainly. Yeah. <laughs> it basically is, man. Oh yeah. man, but and and the thing that always blows my mind is when one of those legacy bands is playing. Here's my thing: is like just being a resident of Tampa or like around Tampa for most of my life. Um, 
I've, I've, I've seen obituary like nine times. You can't fucking avoid them. I was in Walmart getting a new shower curtain earlier today, and I'm pretty sure I saw them play Chopped in Half in the bread aisle or something. <laughs> but every time they play around in Tampa, that place is packed the fuck out, even though they do like four a year in their hometown. <laughs> it just it always kind of blows my mind. It's like all of you have heard all of these songs before. How can you still oh, yeah, be yeah. so interested? <laughs> oh, that's like NYHC bands. Oh, yeah. They did two albums back in the late 80s, and they've just been playing off those. Exactly. <laughs> I can't wait, to, can't wait to get drunk and punch my girlfriend at the rudimentary penny show, you know? <laughs> Well, well, that's that's not that's not a New York hardcore band. Oh, I don't fucking know. I don't know. Rudimentary penis crust is like it's like wretched British schizo crust. How am I going to segue this into my usual opening patter? That's going to be a challenge. (laughs) If you need support, if you need if you need more information on what shows to commit spousal abuse at, you can follow us on social media where we cover that and many more topics. You can follow me, the death metal guy, on Facebook at Terminus. It's not a hardcore podcast. (laughs) Well, you know, we get our own. I mean, Diafago's still around, aren't they? But <laughs> you, can, you can follow me, the Death Metal Guy, on Facebook at Terminus Podcast or the Black Metal Guy on Instagram at Terminus Extreme Metal. Um, and then if you're particularly dedicated, you can subscribe to us on Patreon. Uh, $3 and up gets you access to our Terminus Prime bonus episodes, and $5 and up gets you access to the Terminus Black Circle, our private Discord server where we have a full a whole spreadsheet of helpful tips on domestic violence at the metal oh, show. <laughs> so, with that being said, let's get to something much more acceptable. <laughs> a black metal guy. Uh, we've we've got a black metal split to talk about. The, the end of the year is split season for us, so we're going to have a few of these to talk about. We are... Jumping into Return of the Black Hordes, courtesy of uh, two Black Hordes, Burkhardt's Vinter and Wolf's Blut. This is out on Sturmglanz Black Metal Manufacturer in the German spelling. Don't get it twisted. That's a great <laughs> label name. Um, it is. And they actually put out some pretty cool stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just started hearing about them basically since we started the show. And they've, they put out some pretty neat shit, actually. Yeah, well, so this is a... We covered uh, Burkhart's Vinter over, well over a year ago now, right? Yeah, it was uh, Morgue yeah. Brand. It was her 2020 record. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and what was cool about it was that it was um, extremely true, extremely enthusiastic. Um, it, it was a little ragged for you, just ragged enough for me. Um, the... Uh, there were sort of the songs were kind of assemblies of workmanlike second wave riffs plus occasional really big, you know, just like gigantic chivalric riffs. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't really. But even those were like paired. They weren't like French, like flowery French riffs. Um, and even those were. The songs weren't exactly like directed towards or revolving around them, in a way. There was, but there was there was a lot of fun bashing and then some big payoff parts. And basically, it was just like, I don't know, like if you have a, 
if if your if your heart beats in your breast and you know you like <laughs> you like wolves and swords and shit like uh you know it's it's obviously it's, cool it's definitely the sort of thing i have a lot more appreciation for now that we've been doing the show for a couple of years i've i've gone back to burkhart's venture a little bit uh, since we covered them, and it's like I, I find a lot more to dig into on that style, probably just from talking with you about it more. That, thank you. Yeah, that's nice to hear. I mean, yeah, my listening habits have changed a lot through this show. I was listening to a bunch of Peaceful Doom the other day. Um, you've been and, saying uh, that for the past year about how it's changed because you've been listening to so much Peaceful stuff. <laughs> yeah, slower stuff. But also the other thing is just I have a way longer attention span in general from like listening to like elaborate death metal structures and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but you get some of that with Burkhart's Venture too. I mean, I think the, uh, I think the operative word to describe Burkhart's Venture is uh, shaggy. You know, yes. it's, it's, they're, they're they're long songs that are not. It might be one of the few cases where I endorse a kind of songwriting that is not tight. They yeah. these are. I mean, you talked with them, right? And he said, yeah, we basically picked up our instruments to form the band. Like we just like. It, you know, it's like very much a just like bros writing riffs band. Right? Yeah, I, and, I, uh, I've uh, corresponded with the guitarist a little bit. Mm-hmm. I believe he's credited as Bloodstone for this band. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he's he's talked about how, you know, the whole kind of thing they do it is sort of jam oriented. You know, it's it's coming out of the basement but it's sort of oddly sophisticated at the same time. And, uh, you know, he talked about Wanting to do stuff that was true and authentic, but also, you know, distinct. That was, you know, more than just sort of sounding nice, I believe, were his words. So Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, de- like, definitely formed out of contempt for the pop tendency in modern black metal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, they have these long songs, and sometimes it's, like, unclear why all the riffs are in them. But it makes, the thing that justifies it is the sort of jammy energy holding them together. Um, and, uh, here is, um, here's, here's a good example of that, that, you know, they're the, the longer track on this one. I am the sword of the Luciferian race. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, what comes through is the sheer energy and force of will that's holding these parts together.
Yeah, so there you get a sense of the um, what you were saying, the kind of like surprise sophistication of what's going on. Yeah. You, you go say what you were going to say. No, I was going to say one of the things that really intrigues me about Burkhart's Venter, especially, you know, in the couple years after getting more acquainted with the style and, you know, going back to the last record a little bit is the, these are very horizontal songs. They tend uh, or well, this song, which is the most closely related to the last album, um, which is sort of their personal style. You know, there is a, a sort of like admirable sort of amateurishness to some of the features of it but within that is this really sort of subtle understanding of long form songwriting and how to sort of aggregate these individual parts into something with an outsized meaning like there's a real progression just in that sample there but it's not the sort of thing that you would get by doing very conscious top-down songwriting it really is exploratory. It's based on jamming. Um, mm. It's based on this very organic development of sort of seemingly unrelated musical ideas. And I always find that or, interesting just because that's the opposite of how I write music. Or seemingly interchange- or seemingly interchangeable ideas. So you get like um, the structure to the whole song is interesting because it's just based on a simple like musical game it just starts off with the gigantic satanic war master riff that you mm-hmm. heard as the second to last riff just like starts off the song just dropping into that big men tempo climax riff and then the game is just how do we get back to yeah, it? yeah you, you deliberately paint yourself into a corner and then kind of exactly. find your way out of it <laughs> exactly. yeah and it's it's not like working as a chorus elsewhere in the song it's um and so you you get to and so we start off the sample sort of wandering in the woods in the midst of this set of stompy riffs. And if you were writing it in a more top-down, as you say, or just formulaic way, either way, all those riffs kind of have the same function, right? Mm-hmm. You could just say, oh, that's the stompy riff, or, you know, that's the atmospheric stompy riff. And... Um, you get just like a whole sequence of them, and they don't wear out their welcome in the way that just repeating one, I don't know, eight or 16 times would, because each one is leading into the next. Yeah, they've got an, um, it's got an iterative quality, sort of like a lot yeah. of the death metal that yeah. I listen to, you know? Yeah, and instead of just the one big riff, there's a three riff climax sequence. So you have, before you get the Satanic Warmaster riff, there's this much more sort of um, tense kind of, uh, um, this, yeah, there's a sort of tense, subtle, impressionistic riff that sounds more like a, one of the Hedon's Heart bands. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of like those big, broad chords that are straining up from the root and uh, that have this kind of like weird brightness to them. Uh, and then it drops into the big riff. And then once that like big drop finishes, the actual chorus start chorus like thing starts because it kicks into the the one two beat and you actually get the the like the title of the song delivered basically. yeah <laughs> well so you, it's, with a, with a title like that you have to yell it <laughs> yeah so there's there's actually kind of a lot and there's a new riff for it although it's based on the on the the big riff so it's kind of a yeah like surprisingly so not surprisingly, I guess it's just like understatedly sophisticated, as you say. Yeah, because it's not, um, this is not a band that presents itself in a sophisticated way, which is sort of something I'm noticing 
is like a trend with a lot of the German black metal that I listen to. Mm-hmm. It's this sort of like deliberate, deliberately presenting themselves as very sort of like scrappy and deliberately ignorant, but then repeated listens, you start to draw out a lot of songwriting subtlety. We are but um, humble workmen. Now, now there are moments like the the second track, <laughs> the, the, the second track on their side of the split is just this totally skitzed out fucking like black metal oi banger. Just, so they yeah. they know when to go full retard, but their primary mode, you know, despite what they may have you believe, is actually remarkably smart and sophisticated. All right. So, so speaking of uh, full retard. Speaking of full retard, Wolf's Blood. Yeah. Um, so Wolf's Blood, I was not familiar with uh, before this split. Uh, it's apparently a, a one-man project that's been around for a while. I mean, the first demo goes all, all the way back to 2004, and the guys put out about seven full-length records. Um, so this is our first time encountering him. Uh, so I guess Wolf's Blood finds itself in... A, a pretty like streamlined German black metal style, more on the melodic side than Burkhardt's Venter, um, that also seems to be sort of brushing up against the Franco Finnish thing. But it's got that sort of stern, austere, Teutonic quality that you would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like Burkhardt's Venter's side, it's split into a longer track and a shorter track. In this case, the longer track, Ratama, is um, pretty like capably written, but it feels a little bit um, a little bit too blocky. I think the problem is you're coming off of Burkhardt's Venter that has such a distinct sort of full band energy, mm-hmm. uh, and then you're going into Wolf's Blood, which is this very deliberately pared down sort of blocky one man style. It's a little bit difficult for them to hang in terms of energy, but uh, it's but just it, a solid delivery of like it. Yeah, it's there are other, it's a riff delivery system. It's a, a riff delivery system doing yeah, guy, more like the overall mood is kind of the Horna thing, the more dour or austere finish. Horna is actually a good comparison yeah. there. Yeah. However, a lot of the individual parts sound much more like the bands from the Malignant Voices scene, like around Migla. So, uh, mm-hmm. like yeah. the more garagey stuff by the the younger dudes who play live in Migla, um, and um, it's uh. They're all just, there's like, I mean, I'm thinking like uh, Over the Voids, Owls, Woods, Graves, Ashes, especially. Um, but they're uh, they're all like well-delivered, solid riffs that in a, I, I don't know, maybe in a different kind of song would carry more weight. But it just, you know, a big theme for me this year has been riff fatigue. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, like it's a good riff, but, you know, it's... um. But the really the real banger is the cover. As the saying. real banger is the cover. So yeah, so yeah, the main track wasn't super hot on, but I want to check out some of his full lengths and just see how it works in more of an album mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Wolf's Bullet elects to do a cover of a Thor song. Uh, for those unfamiliar, Thor is a sort of surprisingly obscure old heavy metal band. Um, uh, from Canada, it's sort of like akin to something like Pile Driver, uh, and he he covers a song called "Only the Strong." And I've now I'll be honest, I've never listened to Thor. That's part of a whole wing of sort of heavy metal stuff that I haven't listened to. Um, oh, well, quick up? note: it looks like I, I knew the title was familiar. 
this is a song that is covered by Solstice. Oh, really? So it's probably kind of seen as a one of their reference points for this epic doom thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he does a cover of Only the Strong. And I, one thing I wanted to ask that was so interesting is like when I was listening to this, uh, you know, taking down my notes, this popped on, and I had to like reorient myself and remember that it was a cover because in this day and age, it's weird. But this almost just doesn't even scan as not black metal. I, I, I think I think there's a whole discussion to be had about like the concept of black metal at this point has been so spread out and diffused that it's like, mm-hmm. well, in a world where a bunch of people are listening to, you know, Eisenwinter, which is just a skate punk band with screeches. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I thought this was the Finn Black. I thought this was the, the Finn Black RAC banger. Yeah. <laughs> until I like until I checked, I was like, "Oh, well, yeah." This exactly. is just no, this is nothing. just what heavy metal used to sound like. <laughs> yeah, there there are a couple things in there are a couple things in the song that might tip you off, but uh, you know, it, it just translates over very well. Yeah, and uh, I gotta tell you. I guess you, we should sample it. Oh, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna sample and let me tell you, I, I, I forget where I timestamped it. If it includes, I don't think it includes the intro monologue, but everybody. Please go and listen to this thing. So you were talking about when you first heard this, you were kind of doing the same thing. You're like, oh, these are just like Venom riffs. This is like a, this is like a black metal song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, my God, that's like the fucking riff to Welcome to Hell. And then, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't till it. Yeah, I, I don't know if I figured out it was a cover even until afterward. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like I'm saying. Well, you know, in, in one of my bands, my drummer, who I've worked with for a long time, you know, we're in a black metal band together, but the kind of black metal he usually listens to is, um, he listens to a lot of Marduk and stuff. Um, 
He's listened to a lot of Emperor. He likes his stuff fast and, like, really intense and kind of technical. So whenever me and, like, the bassist are showing him Satanic War Master or something, he always asks, you know, when did you black metal guys just start listening to power metal? When did black metal just turn into power metal? And sometimes when I hear stuff like this cover, I'm like, "There's, there's some validity to that question. Hey, all! This is Brandon from Cromlech, and you're listening to Terminus. And we are back from talking about why later 20th century art sucks <laughs> to discuss As Darkness Burns by Rot on the new Vietnamese label, House of Igra. So, um... We have it, uh, you know, we, we have it from the House of Igra guys that uh, Rot was, is widely regarded as the first Vietnamese black metal band. You know, the, the, the foundational one. Uh, and there were two demos. There's one in 2004, one in 2007. Uh, and then a long period of silence. Right? Uh, and it looks like maybe there's been some activity since 2016, but no records. And so now this new one is out, and it's out on on their label, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and for those who don't know, in the co-prosperity sphere, House of Igra is the imprint of. Uh, I'm not sure if it's one or more than one of the guys from L Crossed, the uh, Vietnamese sort of prog black band that we've been friends with since pretty early on the show. Yeah, it might be it. It might be one of them and someone else, but yeah. So L. So these guys are, I think, you know, instrumental in trying to build the modern Vietnamese scene. They're actively booking shows. They've got their label. Uh, um, it's pretty. I mean, you know, it's playing, awesome. Playing it's... black metal live <laughs> is hard. It's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and for those who don't know, if you look online, I'll post a link down in the description to their uh, to their YouTube channel. Um, they have done really nice recordings of all the uh, the mass shows they've put on. Um, really good, like, multi-camera recordings with uh, soundboard audio. So you can see what a black metal show is like in Vietnam. I have watched all of them so far, and they're fucking great. And they deserve all the support in the world. Yeah, so another thing coming out of this scene is Vong. And Vong has picked up, although, you know... Um, yeah, like, Vong has basically... I think, like, in some ways, Elcrost is going to be a harder sell for people than Vong, right? Because Elcrost mm-hmm. is, like, Cradle of Filth-influenced prog black, right? Yeah. Uh, although, apparently, they didn't listen to Cradle when, when they started. Like, Yeah, and now um, they've but, gotten um, into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we, we turned them on to Cradle of Filth. <laughs> bad Terminus, bad Terminus. They were listening to, like, cool, like, legitimate extreme metal, and they were like, no, dude, go way backwards. Put on your Jinkos yeah. and listen to Cradle. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway... So, so Elcrost is um, Elcrost is doing something that is, uh, you know, like more um, more idiosyncratic. Um, Vong is doing something that has had wide appeal in the circles Terminus normally plays to, which is sort of raw black metal people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and House of Igra, uh, I believe the original Vong demo came out on. Uh, God, that fucking, um, it was a sort of, like, quality edition tape label. Um, 
Yeah, so there was the original Vong demo, and then just this year they he re-recorded it right. and released and, it on House of Igra. Yeah, and uh, so House of Igra put out the full length, the definitive version. And so, yeah, so this is just connecting this nexus of bands. And uh, so we've been trying to, like, when we, at least from when we started cover the Vong record a couple of years ago, right, we've started trying to pin down some key characteristics of what is Vietnamese black metal or is there a broader Southeast Asian black metal sound? Mm-hmm. And we mean independently of, like, uh, you know, Singaporean war metal. Yeah. Um, so... And, you know, we've found, we, we've sort of described it as maybe, like, aquatic in a lot of the scenes. Vong had these wonderful lyrics that were sort of like a shamanic journey through dark waterways. Mm-hmm. Kind of um, nocturnal, but not, like, pitch black moon and icy mountain uh, in a much more, like, uh, yeah, dense, shadow-dense way. Yeah. Um, and... Somehow, like the overall mood produced by the music was more feminine in feeling, mm-hmm. right? You you used that expression. I thought I thought it was apt, yeah. and you could say, um, you know, and we're not saying these are feminine guys or anything. Rather, the music seems to bring out that kind of evoke that. So there's some kind of worship of and intro- direct interest in the feminine, which does not, um, <laughs> doesn't exist in Norwegian black metal. Yeah. yeah. Right? This is, this is women, moon, what are moon music in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. Ah, ah, by the light of the moon, I can more clearly see my shimmering straight sword. That's the Norwegian <laughs> band, right? And, uh, the, these guys are a little interested, more interested in other things in the moonlight. So, um, uh, and we found some of that mood too in the formative Thai band, right? Who are basically one of the cornerstones of the Thai scene, Lotus of Darkness, mm-hmm. who was also turned on to, we were turned on to by one of our listeners. Um, and, uh, so with this, the fact that Rot goes so far back, right? You might think you would hear you would hear the root of this entire tradition, right? Because it predates Lotus of Darkness by a number of years, too, the old stuff. Um, And sort of. But there's absolutely nothing, like, watery or feminine about this. (laughs) Um, Watery, I can occasionally see feminine, no. (laughs) Yeah, and and a different kind of watery. Uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this is... So this is basically ripping, destructive, uh, 1.5 wave black metal, which we'll explain. Um, it is riff based. It has extremely tight, you know, economic disciplined songwriting. Uh, I've been complaining all year about black metal losing its discipline and aggression. This is, you know, this is, this is a, a strong rejoinder to that. This is um, this is a very good um, palate cleanser from a year that has not had a lot of great black metal records, and this is this is black metal executed in a very old tradition extremely well. And it's like, I feel like I'm catching my breath at the end of the year. It's like, okay, no, we we can still do it. Black metal can still do it. You know? <laughs> yeah, and well, the important thing is this is. You know, we, we've reviewed a number of records where we say, like, yeah, this is, like, a great, like, trib, you know, re- re- a great relighting of the old flame or whatever, right? This is a very true, you know, this is a preservation of old tradition. 
this isn't just gonna scan to you like um this is none of the this isn't like throwback or retro bm at all mm -hmm. this is a band that has a very clear vision of what they want to do uh but it is rooted in basically we call it 1.5 wave which was i think your term originally to refer to this wave of bands that are neither that it's sort of it's not the kind of uh you know hellhammer it's not the usual canon basically all the bands we think of from the 80s as proto black which is really just things fenner has told people to listen to <laughs> celtic yeah. frost hellhammer venom basically this list of bands that are like highly highly connected to um basically like punkish stuff mm -hmm. um and, yeah and, and, and old heavy metal and Venom and, like, the first few yeah. Bathory records. Yeah, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are all kind of the standard reference points. Right. And this is, the 1.5 wave stuff is centered much more on bands that are, have the kind of atmosphere that we would associate with the second wave scene, have the kind of speed we would associate with the second wave scene, and are delivering it more in a death and thrash language at the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, uh, I, you know, the the way black metal sort of budded off mm -hmm. of death metal is something that's like become a historical footnote, but I think it's more important to remember because it really gives you a, a different listening experience when you're listening to like classic second wave records and you're listening for the death metal parts, um, mm -hmm. you know, before the black metal rule book was completely codified. And these guys have a really, really good understanding of that, like, nexus of ideas, like, right around 1990 and before. Um, I really like this record. Like, I thought it would oh. be cool because it's coming from House of Igra, but this is, like, really awesome, actually. This is really cool, and I don't really know what I was expecting, but it was definitely not this. I mean, even the band's name, tell, although even the band's name tells you it's not going to be... It's like a death metal band name, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of the music is like, the, the primary riffing style is distinctly black metal, but the way some of these songs are shaped, and especially rhythmically, there's a ton of just like uh, death primitive death metal and just like ripping extreme thrash ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I just think it's awesome. So like, as far as reference points go for like the 1.5 wave thing, we talked about the usual suspects, but I feel like this stuff is rooted a lot more in sort of the the demo bands before the second wave classics had totally coalesced. So I'm mm -hmm. thinking of stuff like Tormentor and Old Funeral and like Death Crush era mayhem. You know, all that stuff that was right on the cusp of emerging into the distinct second wave sound, but was still relying pretty heavily on uh, death and thrash vocabulary. And yeah, also like Morbid, Merciless. Yeah, I mean, not that yeah, I know morbid either of those definitely. bands well. Oh, know, Morbid would definitely yeah. fall into this yeah. category. Um, um, but yeah, no, I think uh, I, 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 there's a lot of idiosyncrasies about this music. That's another thing that I want to emphasize. Like, <laughs> we're going to talk about the 1.5 wave thing a lot, but these guys have a really distinct vision because clearly they've just been, this band has been around a long time. It really knows what it's after. And what it's after... This is going to be like a deep cut kind of record for really serious people, you know, who are super into black metal. They're going to gain a lot out of this, but you're going to need to know a lot of the reference points to know what makes this special. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I think so. Although it is very immediately compelling if you listen to, if you're okay with the idea of black metal being about like heaviness and aggression, which is, Mm -hmm. I mean, like not a universally shared idea at this point. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I want to come back to some of the, the Vietnam, uh, the, the Vietnamese and Southeast Asian vibes and, a few other reference points spun off of that, but I think we should maybe get into samples. Yeah, we definitely should. So, uh, speaking of black metal being about heaviness and aggression, because I'm one of those people who doesn't usually look for that in black metal. Um, here is a song called Pray For Your End. We're going to go right to the opening of the song and wait for the breakdown that occurs where I literally said out loud while listening, damn, that's nasty. So obviously the highlight of that sample is that gargantuan fucking black metal stomp break down there, which is fascinating because it does not sound like Dark Throne, which is like the paradigm for that kind of like black Celtic frost riff. Um, it sounds distinct. It has that weird sort of ragged primitive hardcore vibe that a lot of black metal from around that era did, but it really is sort of like its own thing. It's shaped unusually. Um, you know, the, the points of articulation and emphasis don't land cleanly where you expect them to. Um, and that's a recurring theme across this record, which is a lot of interesting rhythmic play, not just from drumming, but in the way riffs are constructed, uh, notes are kind of falling in unusual positions across the measure. 
Uh, I just think it's really great. And obviously, so there's a bunch of other stuff to dig into with the other riffs. There's that um, sort of descending dyadic riff right before that breakdown, which is one of the only things that has that little bit of like Asian flair in in some of the intervallic choices. You can see how it's shaped like just a, a big old school black metal riff. But there's something unusual about the note, the note choice, about the actual individual relationship uh, in intervals between those different dyads. Uh, and as you pointed out up front, this basically begins with a primitive morbid angel riff, like something off of Abominations, uh, uh, Abominations of Desolation or Altars of Madness. So basically, I guess what I'm getting around to is saying that these guys are pulling on the same originary threads that guys from this era would have been, which is why it sounds so authentic. They're not going back to those bands. They're going to what those bands listen to, and you always get better results doing that. Yeah, another cool thing is that some of the interesting interval interval choices uh, that probably come from Vietnamese music sort of crash into the more abrasive death metal dissonance. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are unusual non-melodic black metal, no, sorry, non-black metal melodic ideas happening in a number of places on this record. And there's a, it's, it's refreshingly hard to tell what is what. That is like, is it a death metal riff? Is it is it like just strange death metal dissonance? Or is it the fact that they just suddenly introduced this more Asian sense of tonality into uh, a traditional black metal riff style? Yeah, uh, and it's interesting. And th th there's like only one or two moments where it's really clear. Maybe your next sample has a clearer moment of it. Um, oh, well, I mean, it's something that's really subtle. It's tucked away back there. And I, I think mm -hmm. you are kind of landing on something, which is just... Um, like if you listen to a lot of like folk music or folk influenced music from Southeast Asia, you get kind of peculiar things. Um, even if it's uh, sort of like pop music that's modeled after Western melodic sensibility, um, you get these moments of interesting seeming dissonance that are just caused by different emphasis on different parts of the scale uh, that they're more used to. Um, and I think some of that creeps in here. It's just a different way of yeah. listening to guitar music, and I always yeah. think it's super cool. Yeah, and although, you know, the tendency now is to use folk music for big, epic, sort of noble-sounding moments, the Norwegian bands used folk music for that and to generate dissonance. Mm -hmm. right? They had very Norwegian folk in particular. Like, they, you know, there are a lot of, like, half-steps in it, and it goes well with the sinister, dissonant minor scale stuff. Um, similarly, they're doing a similar thing with Asian folk music. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's very understated. So some other stuff about, like, um, you know, the major reference points for the melodic stuff. So there was a... There was a big epic melodic part there, but mm -hmm. it was not like the highlight at all. It was a part of a sequence of attack riffs that was leading us toward the breakdown. Yeah, the, the climactic is, moments on this record tend to be very dissonant. Yes. Know? And the big riff, and or so, and that sort of more kind of majestic part. Well, it was, it was really frantic. It was very aggressive majesty. Yeah. But, uh, uh, those moments really strike me as coming from Swedish black, Swedish black death, but mm -hmm. at its most primitive. Um, and we've talked on the show before about how I'm, I'm realizing that it really even shouldn't be called black death 
it's like kind of its own kind of extreme metal. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, it's rooted in thrash. Uh, and so the bands I'm thinking, the band that I thought of first when I heard uh, Rot was a, a very obscure band called Bloodstone that is sort of black metal in mood, but it's mostly driven by one, two beats with like just really heavy down-tuned chainsaw guitars. So something um, akin to like Molested or something like that? Molested is more like arty and has folk melodies in it. Molested almost sounds... Molested is like, yeah, it's like less... It's like Molested is more sophisticated music. Okay. Bloodstone is like um, a better version of the first Absu record. Okay. Um, of Barthram. It's a... Uh, it's it's you have this basically you can hear all the underbelly of thrash that's in the Swedish stuff and just like old death metal. Um, and the, we don't sample the first two tracks, but the first two tra- on the, of the Rot record, but the first two tracks are awesome, and yeah. they feature these like very kind of um, linear, not in the sense of li- or very horizontal, just like dupa 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 you know one two beat with like long trem riffs stretched out over them that are like just ripping and dissonant and uh those are very much like black metal versions of death metal tram lines and bloodstone has a lot of that um, oh that's cool i'll have to check yeah. that out i, yeah. I think I, they yeah. only did like one ep back in the day or something yeah yeah one i think one record but bloods you could they just had yeah so bloodstone was cool but more than that right We've realized also that the Swedish, instead of drawing on that whole Fenris canon for the origin of black metal, the Swedes were really drawing on, you know, like Iron Maiden, of course, but also like Dark Angel. I've come to think that's really important for them. Uh, And Dark Angel is kind of, you know, I mean, I only started listening to that album very recently, Darkness Descends. Yeah, that's a favorite of yours for a long time. How would you describe it? Uh, oh, Darkness Descends is just the, probably the coolest thrash album, <laughs> like, it, it, because it's like, it, it's, um, it's got moments of just like basically being death metal, like on the title track, mm-hmm. it's basically a death metal song, uh, because it's so extreme mm-hmm. and there's just something extremely dark and extremely dissonant about a lot of the material on the record. It's, it's sort of like. It's it's thrash metal with all the remaining traces of fun sort of leached out of it. It, it and is it's, totally anti-fun. Um, yeah, it's malignant. It's, it's like not, really that, mean sounding. That's a good way of putting it. It's not gleefully evil. Like Rain and Blood is like a very, I mean, Rain and Blood has like a terrifying guitar sound, especially mm-hmm. if you're like new to extreme metal. Like it's 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 cold and bleak. But the first and last track give you a bit of like. Yeah, man, this is evil. Yeah, right. It's 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 a bit fun. Dark Angel is weird. Like as a kid, I just didn't have the wherewithal to distinguish it from Slayer. Right. Mm-hmm. I was basically like, we already have Slayer. Um, I didn't have room in my head or heart for two of those <laughs> records, which came out in the same fucking year, which is wild. Yeah. But now listening to it, it is much more to my taste. In part because we've all like listened to the listened to Rain and Blood to Death, but like it's. It's, you know, Dark Angel is a lot more like, um, it's somehow more sort of uh, hardcore-ish in that it is just folk, well, it's not more hardcore-ish, but it's more ignorant. It's more focused oh, on yeah. just continuous beatdown. And on the other hand, it sounds, there are more kind of uh, 
strange magical maybe even somewhat heroic melodies laced in there Mm -hmm. it's it's like so it's got some of the this it's got some of the um sinister knight or vampire vibe in black metal yeah Um, i can see that it's it's got the um and it's point it has a more i guess what i mean is it has a more elaborately it has a continuous atmosphere in a yes, very black it does. metal way. Um, and the riffs are more... There's more like... Uh, there are these kind of elaborate, kind of classically riffs in it. Classical-ish melodies in the riffing. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though it's very primitive and brutal. So basically, like, Dark Angel seems to have been a reference point for the Swedes. Uh, and it's also a reference point for Rot, I think, in a very immediate way. Uh, this is... Um, so let's listen to Split Your Gut here <laughs> for once, thank God, or, you know, whoever is, uh, the, um, is the, a black metal band that starts with the breakdown. <laughs> It has that moment where there's some arpeggiating cording and arpeggiated cording and some vocal, you know, some vocals. It's kind of like the verse riff, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a part that sounds conspicuously what we would now stereotype as second wave or, oh, that's black metal, right? Mm-hmm. The rest of this song is just endless mid-tempo chug and basically like breakdowns with a strong um, jump to fuck up rhythmic quality. 
Yeah, uh, which there was a lot of back then. No, People yeah, just well, don't remember it. Yeah. I said, finally, a black metal song that starts with the breakdown. Mayhem does. Yeah. Once, if not multiple times, on Demisterius. Um, <laughs> and with the same kind of, uh, you know, with the same kind of um, viciously soulless funk. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I was saying that whole time I was playing this. This track in particular has really distinct Death Crush vibes to it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like it's about gore, you know, it's Mm -hmm. it's it's using these incredibly blunt, primitive, angular kind of thrash breakdown riffs to create an atmosphere of like animosity and cruelty and shit Mm -hmm. in a really cool way, you know, in a way that's just not done a lot anymore. Yeah, and so and and that sort of just like array horizontal sequence of just one beat down after another is very Dark Angel. I mean, there's, uh, the, you know, from Black Prophecies, which is a long song. There's just like a five minute bulldozer section at the end. The song <laughs> ends, and then they start another one immediately. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> um. So yeah, to you. Uh yeah, so uh, more on like weird rhythmic stuff. I I think if there's um, a core thing that really differentiates Rot from a, a lot of other people now, and a lot of other people kind of imitating this era of black metal, it's a willingness to use really weird rhythmic arrangements. Like on that last sample of yours, um, almost all those riffs are based off a of sort of like. Uh, six four time signature, a four mm-hmm. four with a cut time rider at the end of yeah, it, yeah, yeah. which is the sort of thing you heard uh, much more frequently. That's a very kind of Celtic frosty thing to do. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like you know those Celtic frost riffs. They always they feel kind of wonky. There is a lot of like waltz time stuff in there. It's it's not quite as straightforward as it first appears. Um, so now and, let's, and those are the parts that the Fenris canon of black metal part like just writes out of Celtic Frost because they're not punky, right? It's exactly. Like Celtic Frost. Yeah. I used to hear Celtic Frost as Hellhammer Mark II. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so well, now I want to talk about. So think about these same sort of unusual rhythmic ideas, but applied to the faster material. Um, so we're going to listen to the back half of a track called Of Darkness and Sin. This might be my favorite on the record. Uh, there is a really cool, fast, palm-muted trem thrash riff, Ooh. Uh, which, of course, in thrash tradition is, you know, mostly sitting on, you know, just an open E. But the way the chords pop out forming the melody, um, you will not be able to predict when they land. And the effect of it is really fascinating.
lot of interesting things happen over the course of this song. So I was trying to think of it when I was listening to this album, like what couldn't have been there, um, say back in like 89, because almost the entire record is built out of parts that are like conceivably possible back then. About one of the only things are like the clean guitar passages, mm-hmm. um, which really wouldn't become like a defined thing until like the mid '90s, because like the the more open kind of gothy clean guitar stuff mm-hmm. there was very much like a dissection kind of thing, um, like first dissection record. But you have to remember that dissection was active way earlier than we think, right? This is one of those mind blowing things. Mm, yeah, uh, I always forget um, how early he actually it, was. It, it, yeah, so um, by the somber lane is ninety three, and you know basically, uh, I, you know I thought that the Norse bands like Gorgoroth were influencing the Swedes, and it seems to have been the other way around. Um, basically, like epic, you know, sort of epic sounding extreme metal was not fully formed, but forming in pretty clearly in Sweden by like ninety four. Yeah, um, yeah. So the Somberland, yeah, Somberland is 93, and I think you really pinned down, like, there are moments, I God, I, I still, I don't, I don't love, I want to like that record, I don't love it, but yeah, there are some same. really cool moments. There are, it's just too proggy, and it's too much Metallica, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, but there are, there are moments where it just is the full later dissection idea with those kinds of chords, but just played in this much more primitive way, so it's like... Yeah, I, I, that totally makes sense to me as just like death metal dissection. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I mean, the thing I originally wanted to draw attention to, though, uh, before I got sidetracked there is that fucking palm muted thrash riff with mm-hmm. just the strangest like <laughs> vocal and chord emphasis. Like it's you often hear riffs like that and they'll have like a weird kind of syncopated vocal inflection in there, sort of a hardcore drive thing, or it'll be like a three against four pattern here. It's like a, it's like a seven against four pattern for the 16th notes for where the vocals mm-hmm. are landing. It's just very strange. It's super off kilter. And you almost think that it's sort of out of sync with itself until that big chord run at the end ties it all together. Um, Really, I get, Rot trades in kinds of extreme metal riffs that have basically just been j- jettisoned from extreme metal over yeah. the past 20 years or so. Think how much work it took to write that thrash riff. Oh, yeah, that's such a pain in the ass to be able to, like, play that cleanly. (laughs) Just to come up with all the parts, right? There's the initial idea, and then you just, like, to execute it, like, because it's written with the vocal. Yeah, yeah, it's like starting as an idea between, you know, vocals and guitar there, very distinctly. And and I was thinking of, there are very, very few places I've ever heard anything like that, but it really distinctively recalls one thing, and I figured it out. It's Absu, Um, Mm. which would definitely be in the wheelhouse for this kind of thrashy, death, morbid angel-y black metal, right? Yeah, yeah. and so, like on on Shield with an Iron Face, and just a number of the other tracks on Tara, there's that kind of da 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 da, that kind of like offbeat attack. Yeah, those uh, little on the, on the thrash riffs. They're like a, it's almost like a an attempt to recreate like string stabs in like soundtrack yeah. music, like in a horror film. You know, I like that. Yeah, and it also just makes it sound. 
he's hitting behind the beat, but therefore ahead of it because it's so yeah. syncopated. It just sounds very vicious. It's like really driving it. Um, and do you think that's more recent that that sounds like is a partiva rectatora? Yeah, yeah, that's it's interesting. Um, I didn't even think of that connection, but there is a weird amount of shared DNA. I think maybe it's just mm-hmm. um, a lot of Asian bands right now sort of exploring. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I. I wonder what the connective tissue is there. It seems like there's something about like old Morbid Angel and that sort of riff construction yeah. Yeah. that is very influential right now. O- old Morbid Angel carried to a more sort of percussive and rhythm-driven place. Mm, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Morbid Angel, but yeah, not as a some... riffs band. Yeah, yeah, I, I like I like that. Yeah, that's yes, that that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the um, so yeah, now we've got a track called "Journey to the Afterlife." It's the last song after an album of nothing but face rippers. You could be forgiven for thinking, well, now he's going to do like the epic one, "Journey to the Afterlife." This is going to be a synth outro. <laughs> this is going to be a um, an extended Bathorian epic. This is. Nah, fuck that shit. Stretched out mayhem riff. I like I like how this band like says fuck you to their own melodic ideas. They always just every no, time there's exactly a, that's there's what a I big there's about. always a big soaring melodic idea and then they just like kick it in the jaw and do something really ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah, e- exactly. So it's um. I had just kept listening there and forgot you had gone in, but that was a really good segue. So let's roll. Um, the uh, yeah, the exactly. So you get something that sounds a lot like those chords, i.e., the Franco-Finnish stuff that's big these days, and you start to get that sort of droning, uh, you know, sort of droning epic Dorian scale thing, although a little more sinister, and then we get this. Suddenly, this big release, boong, boong, kind of like a Misfits downstroke thing. Mm-hmm. And then you think, oh, shit, are they just going to do another one of those and make some crushing end? And then they're just like, boong, boong. <laughs> <laughs> they, there's like, they don't even give you the kind of release that like a certain kind of brutality would. They just instantly scronk it out 
and bend it to drop back into the original, the the beginning of the sequence. It's uh, yeah, really as, cool. Well, yeah, as as deliberately like sort of rough hewn and primitive as this mm-hmm. can be at times. It's like it's again. It's sort of like when we were talking about Burkhardt's Vendor. It's deceptively like super smart music, and it's like really kind of like more full spectrum than you would anticipate. I mean, you're thinking of like arguably the first black metal band of a nation. You expect something like scrappier and blockier, but no, this is like sophisticated, very well paced, very multi dimensional music. I mean, you've got your your brutal Celtic Frost stompers, you have much more epic sort of like mayhem or early emperor melodies, and you've got everything between those points. So it's just, it's a very, very complete in a way that I find super satisfying. Oh, you forgot. You wanted to mention the uh, connection to Pentagram, right? Oh, that, that yeah. first riff, the reason it sounds like Franco Finnish stuff, but not quite is because. Uh, yeah, I think probably the primary, like, actual second wave reference point for these guys is the first couple Gorgoroth records, especially mm-hmm. Pentagram. Um, you can even hear that on some of the kind of, like, uh, like droning, like, ugly stomp riffs. I mean, you can imagine songs like uh, Drummer on Dodd or Ritual off of the first Gorgoroth record. And that's another band that demonstrates that mastery of both like the most thuggish and ignorant, just bashing power chord stuff, as mm. well as sort of lilting aristocratic melody. Um, and this yeah. and Rod is a band that's also trading in the relationship between those ideas. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, you know, and the cool thing with it is like even when it goes to those those scronky chords at the end, you assume it's just starting a different. It's like opening up into some greater melodic sequence. I, I guess that's really what you're getting at. At that mm-hmm. point, they're just like not thrash.
Come on! 
We are back uh, with um, what will undoubtedly be a, a very strange review. Uh, so a couple years ago, uh, the black metal guy actually brought onto the show the second full length by Imha Tarakat titled Stern and Burster, um, which you had mixed feelings about, but immediately became one of my favorite things in the world. Um, that actually ended up on my year end list in 2020. So actually now we've swapped roles, and I'm the one who's kind of been following Imha Taraka, where you've fallen off of it a little bit. Um, so now, uh, at the tail end of 2022, we have the follow-up titled, ambitiously, and this will tell you a lot up front, Hearts Unchained, At War with a Passionless World, out on uh, Prophecy Productions on the Lupus Lounge imprint of that label. Uh, and this is a really, really interesting record. I think we talked about it for like 20 or 30 minutes before we actually started recording the show. Um, so there's a lot to cover. Uh, where should black metal guy, where should I begin? Should I just try to talk about where this is at musically? This is kind of a hard record to talk about in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, one simple way I could just say, like, what initially interested me about them back in the day was the Kinoboros EP. Mm-hmm. That was in 2017, and it was seemed pretty clearly influenced by Migla, but was very, very unusual. This band has always had a distinct identity. Like, that's mm-hmm. often the problem for a band. For this band, that's just, like, the starting point. Um, yeah. And it was like it, it wasn't it wasn't particularly riffy, but it had this compelling uh, texture about it. There were some, some cool, pretty unique ways of harmonization and a big a sort of warm, warm and fuzz based uh, guitar sound, mm-hmm. much like broader than a usual black metal tone that did not sound. It, it, it didn't sound like a post-black thing, right? It was still, like, powerful. And the 
and it and although it had these features it sort of suggested at times more arty music there's parts that where the accordion really sounds like sonic youth or whatever yeah uh, but at the same time there would be like motorhead beats and there were these very conspicuously sort of tough bellowing vocals yeah uh, that um i think in retrospect we realize we're probably influenced by Boltzer. But, you know, also have some in co- something in common with some of the House of First Light energy. Um, and it was just an unusual, it was an unusual thing, and I wanted to keep my eye on it. And uh, so, and, and a lot of that basic character has remained, right? It's very modern. It is very noticeably influenced by Migla. Yeah. It is, uh, I think, noticeably influenced by also the the buzzing drone tones in Boltzer, as well as yes. maybe. Yes. Yeah. Um, as well as some of the arena-sized ambitions, right? Yeah. Um, I, I guess to start off with, um, I, th- th- here's where we'll be. A li- we'll start d- dipping our toes into the weirdness. So I think we both agree this is like not a black metal record. Yeah. No. I mean, like there are. Yeah, this is in that terrain, indeterminate terrain of sort of like. Roadburn Records central German stuff that is like very polished influenced by black and or death metal and has these kinds of like um, you know it projects some kind of like heavy metal intensity and aggression but also has these shimmering guitars and a lot of um, a lot of songwriting conventions that are much more related to rock music yeah Um, I I would go as far as to say, I mean, this might be ambitious. This might be me being like cool, critical hot take. But on a certain level, I don't think this really has a ton to do with metal in general anymore. This is heavy, aggressive guitar music, but it's just not shaped in the manner of heavy metal anymore at all. Um, and what it is instead is really interesting because, like I said, I would say the primary ingredients, like you said, are uh, McGlaw and Bolts are here, who are both bands sort of on the the edge of what we would call extreme metal. Um, and a lot of the things outside of metal that they're influenced by, you know, stuff like goth and post-rock and, you know, sort of weird edges of folk music are also present here. But Imhat Harakat's delivery of those ideas is very different. Um, should I get into my, like, weird album thesis now? Or should I, <laughs> like, it's that, um, or should I hang on to that it, for a bit? Well, I guess, um... It, gosh, we could do to keep this concrete rather than having it just become us talking totally, about totally shit floaty, in the abstract. Yeah. yeah, why don't we? Why don't we go to your first sample? Because I think that pretty naturally demonstrates what's weird here, and will allow you to say what you think about it. And from there, I can maybe tie it back to some of the stuff that I didn't like about the first record and how I see him responding to that here. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think it's going to be important that people yeah. like hear what we're talking about and how that kind of extrapolates oh. to the whole and, record. And by by first record, sorry, I mean Stern and Barrister, which was the second full length and the one we re- we last reviewed yeah, two yeah. years ago. So let's go to a song called Brute Majesty, which is the third full track on the album. Um, 
so just as a little preamble, I had heard the lead single that had the uh, video attached to it, which I believe was Radical Righteousness, um, a few weeks before this release, and I listened to it a few times, and I was just kind of perplexed. It was one of those rare occasions where I couldn't tell if I liked something or not. <laughs> and I was wondering how much of an indication that was going to be for the rest of the record. And uh, two or three tracks in, I was like, oh boy, we're in for something very different. So let's listen to about the first half of Brute Majesty. Uh, I've had to take kind of longer samples on uh, on yeah. this segment just because this is a record where structure is so important to really understanding what it's going for. So let's listen to Brute Majesty and try to listen to it without thinking of it as like a black metal song.
So uh, I guess to start, it's important to understand this is not riff-based music in the way that we understand heavy metal. There are cool sort of riff-type objects, but they're not employed in the way that a metal riff is. In this sample, there's really only two super distinct riffs, and the first one that takes up, you know, basically the first minute and a half of the song sort of doesn't go anywhere, it, but in an interesting way. It's a sort of convoluted, melodically tense tremolo riff, but it doesn't really have a tonal center. It looks like it's struggling to kind of find an anchor within itself. And it's not really until the lead guitar bursts out that the song like redirects itself. And then the riff that comes up after that long sort of uh, lead figure is much more vital and much more immediate and communicates a lot more to the listener. I'm still kind of dwelling in realms of abstraction, but it's challenging to talk about because I think one of the fundamental conceits about this record is that these songs are, they tend to be structured in a way that is really emphasizing lead guitar and vocals over everything else. And uh, to dip my toe into the sort of conceptual idea that underlies all this, I think that what we're seeing is an attempt to arrange songs in a way that reflect the album's concept, at least as far as I understand it, which seems to be sort of... Uh, the creative individual's uh, difficulty and struggle against the modern world and society, you know, uh, and reflected musically by sort of passages of sort of grinding repetition without center, without meaning, that explodes into meaning when these more wild human influences come in, these more organic ideas of lead guitar and explosive vocals and stuff like that, uh, which may be a stretch, but that's kind of my idea, is that this is a very top-down conceptual record, and a lot of the strange songwriting decisions are used to back that up. Now, Black Metal Guy, am I merely going schizophrenic fully this time, or is there something to the idea? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think there is something to it. Uh, I think it, um, it, yeah, I like, I glanced at the beginning of your notes before I listened to this, so I may have been somewhat biased, but I do think that you are right, and there are certain samples that make it, certain passages that make it very clear. I mean, uh, we could honestly almost maybe go to my my first sample next or something because it, it makes it i think that makes it very clear what's going on here. yeah sure we can but um uh but first i wanted to clarify something when does the breakout moment happen for you because to me it's at i mean i'll say that like the initial motif thing right that there's a it's hard to say, if you listen to that on speakers, or the whole mass of it, it will just sound like it's kind of not going anywhere. It's it's riffier to me when I listen on headphones. Like, I, like I could say, oh, there's a motif. But I agree, it's not really being developed. It sounds kind of forced. It sounds like a fragment of a melody. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think, I think when the lead comes in, 
Do you think that the breakout is when the lead drops over it? You have the uh, the reverby thin lead over it, or with the drop when the, everything drops out and suddenly you get this sort of Swedish style single string trem? I think it's when everything drops out. I think that okay, I agree with you on that. My idea is sort of like the uh, at least in this case the lead is sort of like it, it's a bridge between the sort of like real world and the creative world. It like it forms the passageway into sort of like the realm of the creative mind. So it, it introduces a path outside of the sort of like grinding repetitive stuff that usually a lot of songs start with on this record. It's, I would see like the initial lead, I find to be like the weakest part of the song. Mm -hmm. It's this yeah. thing that's like dropped over the underlying churn of the motif. And it's totally, it's like, that has this sort of searching on uncentered searching oh yeah exactly you would say you would say that's deliberate here i think that it's completely deliberate uh it's like and then it's groping around for a figure and what happens as and, and this happens on a lot of songs i think is that it finds its figure by rejecting its previous conceits uh the climactic moments on this record aren't really built up to so much as explosions caused by just sort of refusing <laughs> refusing the implications earlier in the song you know the, you phrased yeah. it really well in the notes as a decision is made a conscious decision gets made on a lot of these yeah. songs i think that's clearer on your uh, on your next one so we could go there uh but yeah i think this is a case so i'll get into it more but um yeah, well, let's talk about the decision now. Let's just flesh it out. So, yeah, it's as if there's a, you know, something, um, you know, I've had, as as most of our listeners know, uh, you know, because the show was kind of a shambles for a while in late summer and early <laughs> fall, I've had a shit ton of work this year and really since the middle of last year. And uh, there's just, you know, there are moments required when you you know, you're just completely exhausted or whatever, right? When you just have to, like, really deliberately activate just this thing that's different from any of your other impulses called a will, right? Mm -hmm. This, you know, this record is very much about passion, right? And so here we get kind of the passion that rules them all, right? I don't mean, like, conscious, deliberate. I don't mean, like, like planning or conscious scheming, but there's a deliberate decision, uh, and you, you know, you have to sort of drown out the lesser, the noise of the lesser impulses and really just, instead of just like normally, like having an intention and going and doing it when in those moments where it's hard, right, you have to concertedly focus all your power towards a goal when it stops coming naturally to you. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this this it really the record really evokes those decision points and maybe when that, in that dropout right you can hear the kind of noise dropping out and the melody that comes in yeah i like what you said it is not really developed towards it's basically like all the riffs before it are the shitty version of it and then it finds the riff yeah yeah it's, and 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 the thing that happens isn't a riff in fact it's one of the closest things to a fully developed melody on the record but it's made out of that mo the you can hear the same original motif all over it mm -hmm. yeah there's uh, um it's um, a lot of these songs are based really around like a single melodic idea. 
and mm-hmm. everything sort of revolves very closely around uh, iterations on that single yeah. melodic idea. This is a so this is a record that's like these songs are very individual and very sort of like packaged within themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, sort of vignettes out of a bigger story than it is like an entire sequence, like a single narrative arc. Um, but yeah, these these decision points I feel are really what the album is made out of. And I think that the mileage the listener gets out of it is how interesting they find that conceit. Um, because I'll, I'll, if I'm trying to be more straightforward, I don't know how much of this record I'm really enjoying from moment to moment because a lot of this record seems to be built to be like sort of deliberately frustrating your expectations and Mm -hmm. deliberately sort of grinding down your will with sort of repetitive kind of chaotic unanchored noodling that immediately snaps together into this extremely directed, uh, extremely precise melodic idea. Um, I think that I have probably more time for that sort of thing than you do, just from sort of prog rock priors and stuff. But it's super interesting, and I don't think I've ever heard a metal-ish record constructed in this manner. So we'll get a clearer example on your next one, right? That also has a, a very dramatic decision moment. Yeah, so, but yeah, we'll just go into that. So I'm going to go to actually the next song, which is Flood of Love, The Beast Trigger. Um... We're going to the back half of the song. Nothing happens in the first half of this song. It is just desperately finding something to hang on to. And the sample starts where Imha Tarakat says, fuck it, pushes the back, the first half of the song to the side and starts something seemingly completely new. Let's 
okay, man, I gotta go for just like at the absolute most pretentious thing I have ever said on this show. You're gonna love it. So I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> you're ready. Everybody, get ready. Get ready to make fun of me on Revelation of Doom for this one. Okay, so the way I see this, I I see this as like there's something about this record that has like a musical theater quality to it. It's very demonstrative. It's very, like, instructive to the listener. Various musical voices appear to be playing sort of pseudo-characters or something. But the sense that I get off of this song in particular, and to a lesser degree off all the others, is the idea of, okay, sort of looping, furtive, tense trem riffs. Lead explodes out. Whole new pathways are opened up for the riffs under it. And what we roll out on is that lead becoming the foundation of the melody for the riff itself. So to me, what it's expressing there in this very like fine art type way is if the bulk riffing, the bulk material of the music is reality, is real life and the sort of grinding repetition of everyday life, the lead becomes introduced as the creative mind, so to speak, and then through force of will and passion applies its framework to material reality under it. You know what I mean? It's like it, it becomes the the real life becomes what the creative mind dreams. It's, you know, the actual... Uh, the actual realization of certain goals and concepts and stuff. And I think that's really fucking cool. I might be an insane person, but there's something really distinct about the way these parts are arranged that suggests like something highly allegorical about the way everything's set up. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense to me. Um, the, uh, yeah, it's very yes, it's very dramatic and narrative-based music. Um, it uh, the I mean, I guess there are a lot of different directions I want to go at once. Um, I think we should just continue illustrating that basically. Uh, yeah, sure. Building on that, like the um, but the I guess we're just showing a number of different versions of a symbol, sing, you know, a single point, and then I have you know I can get back to the more big picture stuff but or to my take on it but um i think they're the yeah I, I'm, I'm good on that part so i'll we'll go forward um here yeah, we, is, we have to assemble all the pieces before yeah, yeah. Here, here's the part that uh and i just yeah i want to make sure we get to all of them um here is like the track that really confirmed for me what you said was going on here so uh, this one's called Streams of Power, Kanavar, which appears to be a Turkic word for a beast or a wolf. Um, this is maybe the shortest song, and it's kind of the change it up mid-tempo number, and it'd be easy to dismiss for that. But it seems like the place where it really makes explicit the, or distills the kind of pattern you find throughout the record. Uh, and so when I heard this, I was like, oh, the death metal guy is right. That, that kind of <laughs> is what's going on here. Um, uh, duh, duh, duh. Um, so let me just get that lined up. And we're just going to start from the beginning.
So back to the mundane. All right. There's the sort of, uh, you get your, your sort of humdrum daily routine and you get your uh, sort of orgasmic explosive escape and then you're back to the mundane. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this case, it's not transformed by the journey. Maybe at the very end of the song or maybe as it blends into the next one. But uh, this is, you know, a lot of this record is, I think, as you say, shows these two aspects of life as he sees it straining against one another. Yeah. Right? Um, in a way that doesn't always uh, neatly or heroically resolve. Um, it's uh, sometimes, right, there are these big moments of sustained triumph. But uh, there's some really... Before I talk more about style, uh, there's some really deliberate, um, really deliberate guitar playing here. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's that initial sort of mid-tempo riff, uh, and as it goes along, uh, there's a there's a B riff that keeps the same rhythm, um, the same sort of like syncopated mid-tempo beat, but uh, pulls out of that texture of sort of. Um, you know, reverby, shimmering arpeggios into these scything power chords and octaves, right? Or like octave, I think octaves. They're mm -hmm. like, it's a much, suddenly the tone is focused on a single line. So that goes with what you were saying about the lead. It's not a lead, but like we go from like texture to line. Um, and it's moving in much more uh, sort of dissonant metally intervals or like it's a different kind of dissonance. Um, then you get to the, uh, then it, it repeats just as an A, B, A, B. But on the second A, there's a lot of different embellishment thrown in. Um, I, I think he's, if he wasn't improvising on previous records, which he may well have been, especially in some of the solos and leads, mm -hmm. I think there's definitely like jam room and improvisation being worked into the songwriting here. So he dresses up that first arpeggiated riff in ways he does not the first time you hear the A, right? So it's different. A, the A prime is different. The B prime is different. And then we get the C riff, which is so-called the big riff. And it's basically like this stoner rock thing. Yeah. Right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, man, green machine, right? Um, and But that thing that you think is going to be the big riff, it just zips by because it's a single rep wind-up into this really long sequence of, again, they're not riffs, really. Like, it's it's a... Basically, the thing that sounds like, like a riff is just the basic fl the flourish at the beginning of this long series of motifs that are... Uh, that it's like a sustained sort of climax. It escalates a little further than it de-escalates. Um, it's very sort of architectural. It's got kind of like a step pyramid form. And it guides us back down, and then we're back to... Re you know, snap back to reality. <laughs> um, uh, and so, so this gets to, you know, as, as it was fading out, you said, oh, I like that gothy bass line, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I saw someone on the Bandcamp page compare this uh, this record to Early Killing Joke, and that kind of raised an eyebrow for me because I was like, I don't really remember this band sounding like that. But, I mean, certainly on this track, um, this verse riff, uh, especially that the the thing it starts from and returns to, it is really just exactly a killing joke idea, 
right? Uh, the sort of um, that exact rhythmic mo- form, the um, the sort of the, the fast, the dubby but fast bass, the um, fast relative to dub reggae, the um, uh, you know the guitar textures absolutely is. Um, so credit where credit is due to a guy whose bandcamp name is Matt Damon. <laughs> uh, That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um so that's so that's interesting. So um th- but this the the killing joke that often crops up in metal is the most fucked up dissonant shit off of Revelations, which yeah. really sets the pace for like a, a ton of the more, you know, uh, you know, Akarkaka or even DSO or whatever, yeah, like right? sets but up Godflesh and stuff. It basically invents weird te- yes a certain kind of weird cold technological guitar tone for metal guitar style uh godflesh exactly um it's it's revelations and this is some of the go- the sophisticated texture on revelations but it's not so fucked up or gorked um yeah. and the other thing is like the track the weight which is every metallica riff ever um, yeah <laughs> and this is not the weight um either it's it's the it doesn't have the mood Rather, there are all these tracks on the first record that have this like that are like more like dub, um, that have this anxious, bleary, hazy mood. Mm-hmm. Um, like you're, uh, you know, you're not on the acid, and you are really feeling paranoia, right? Um, yeah, it's it's. it's um, it, it's like, and so there's a track Requiem or Tomorrow's World really has this. And there's a kind of like dystopian boredom, right? Um, and so this is a place that Imaha Tara got in this tradition of British goth and post-punk bands who thematized boredom. They were <laughs> interested in the idea of boredom. That's not really a metal thing, and to the extent you get it, you get it in some of the really far-out DSBM that the death metal guy likes, right? Yeah. Um, but, so, so one of them is the killing joke, another is the chameleons. Uh, who come up on this show a fair amount, and as the chorus develops, you could hear that more, right? You get out of the headbanger section, and then these more and more of the swirling synths start to layer in, and they have this more kind of, uh, I don't know, like, sort of whispering, elegiac, ghostly thing, rather than the eerie textures at the earlier in the track. Um so something about the killing joke and chameleons is that both of them are good at evoking boredom without being boring. Yeah. Right. The killing joke is like, you're the really, you're the cool guy who's, uh, you know, on so much acid, he wears sunglasses everywhere. So people can't see the whites (laughs) of his eyes. Right. You know, you're, um, and in the chameleons, it's basically like they're looking for this sort of, uh, slightly creepy magical beauty on the edge of the mundane. All right. Um, yeah, I think th- I think this and I think this record sort of tr- trades in emotional wavelengths that just aren't common to metal in general. Yeah. Yes. So this is yeah. So it is a goth emotional wavelength or a post punk emotional wavelength. The other band that might be a direct reference for this band is an American band, Wipers. Uh, but um, so this is because this part so directly taps into that post punk lineage. I think this is the most successful, deliberately boring part on the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the re- record is full of deliberately boring parts, but I think this one is evokes boredom without actually being boring. 
Yeah. Um, it's uh, and you know that, but that and that whole, but if you take this sort of post-punky vibe and apply it to the rest of the record, it it bears fruit, right? Uh, I think one question you could raise, right, is you said the music is very demonstrative, right? And mm-hmm. I have like illustrative, right? In yeah. Or, you know, allegorical is also good, right? There's a... So because this record is acting out this kind of drama of banality and ecstasy, right? And I mean ecstasy in, like, the full technical sense of the term. It's sort of like this out of cathartic, out-of-body experience, yeah. right? Um, this... Uh, this record sort of tends towards a kind of didacticism, right? It's got a thing it's trying to teach you, and it tends towards telling rather than showing, right? That is from the song, right? Even the song titles do this, right? They suggest that, yes, this album is very passionate. This song is very beastly, right? Uh, And and it goes down to the song structures, which are doing this as in terms of a musical narrative, like like sort of sound painting it. So the problem is that that often evolves long stretches of boring music, right? These kinds of like uh, aimlessly churning micro motifs. Uh, and the question would be, you could say, why not make music that just does that? Like instead of, <laughs> instead of making music about breaking out of banality, so you have to have a lot of banality, why not just make music that breaks out of banality at first hand, right? Uh, because presumably that's something this guy really likes about art. And, and, and likes about some of his favorite bands, right? That's like what With Hearts Toward None does, right? Or you can think of another great, uh, of a great German band, Vile de, uh, the Odell's record, Vile de Croft, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, Satanic Warmaster, Corellian Satanist Madness. Again, these records will sweep you up out of everyday life, and it's sort of difficult to come back from them. Um um, I, I get where you're coming from, and, like, I, I know it's kind of a rhetorical question, but I'll still kind of answer yeah, it. Yeah, you know, you should, because I've, I've talked for a long time about no, this. No, you're stuff, fine. So. No, it's, uh, so I guess my thing is, like, yeah, so our favorite things in, I'd say that our favorite things in extreme metal in general are a reprieve from the banality of, like, modern life. Um, and all those records are great examples of something that really sort of transports you uh, outside of the mundane. But I don't think there's a lot of metal records about the interaction between those two spaces. Um, I I think there is something to explore in... This is a very, like, meta art record to me. It, it's like... Yes. It, it's a record that's sort of about art and about the mm-hmm. creative process. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, so I think the fact that the music structurally goes to that kind of meta place and really wants to interrogate the relationship between the banality of the mundane and the excitement and wonder of creativity. Um, but I, you just used the word interrogate the relationship about a metal record. Yes, I know. Or, or a, a record in general. Yeah. Uh, that was bad. I know. I know. No, it's, no, but that's the point. No, it's not bad of you because it's very apt. The point is, is this too is this cerebral and self-reflexive in a way that's just not what one should be going for in extreme music? Oh well, no, that's right. I, I meant bad in the sense of like, oh man, you can definitely tell I took a semester and a half of college one yeah, time. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, I wasn't saying that about you. I was no, no, I'm saying it, it about big, myself. It extremely <laughs> apt because it's how 
Yeah, it's 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 how like a college art professor might describe this record. And um, well, I guess I guess I would answer like. Uh, like, is that okay to say that about a metal record? Well, I've got kind of two answers to that. One, one is that I don't think Imaha Tarakat has realized quite yet that what they're after actually isn't heavy metal. Yeah, I, that's fair. I, I think that really, I think that this is this record is really the sound of the band arriving at what they were maybe reaching for, and it's still kind of crude and unformed, but this is a distinct vision right here. And I think that that vision isn't actually heavy metal. I think it's some other kind of aggressive guitar music we don't really have a word for yet. Um, and the other answer to the question more, more pertinent to is that something we want in metal I, I would say, oh God, there is another record that I, I th when we were talking about Lycathia Flame, um, I love that record to death. I also don't think that it should be a pattern for metal. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I think that it is great that that record exists. And I think it's great that certain few people take influence from it, but I wouldn't like the majority of heavy metal to sound like that. Yeah. You wouldn't want a Lycathia worship band. No. And I certainly wouldn't want a, uh, you know, like a whole wave of artists just influenced by this very precise idea. So I guess for Imha Tarakat in this case, it's like, well, I think it's sort of the exception that proves the rule. I think it's cool that there is something that's exploring this. I would certainly not want even a plurality of heavy metal to be like this, but I do like that it's there. Um, okay. Exploring a different space than what I'm used to. Fair enough. And so the other answer to the rhetorical question, right, is one counter argument you could make is you could say that, okay, in the big moments, it's not just showing rather than tell, it, rather, it's not just telling rather than showing. Because in the big moments, it really, many of the big moments at least, it really does what it says on the tin, right? Uh, that it's not just about triumph of over stagnation, but in many of these climactic parks, it also really does triumph over stagnation. And, you know, the explosions really explode, right? It's, you know, so th there is in the, if we want to get art school about it, right, the music is kind of performative. It's thematizing this stuff, but it's also really doing it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's doing the things about it. It is in these moments, delivering moments of, sort of rapturous unchaining. Yeah, it's whatever, it's right? it's really it's structurally mirroring its concept in a very immediate yeah. way. Well, not just mirroring the concept, it is doing it. Like that's the the the, the little thing, right? It's mm -hmm. not just paralleling it or acting it out in allegory. It is uh accomplishing it's ach achieving yeah. the thing it's about. Exactly. Um so I think that's often, I think there are a lot of really good cathartic moments on this record. And I think, um, you know, you heard like the, the, all the sophistication that goes into that big part that we just heard, right? There's a mm -hmm. lot of composition in there. And also just shout out to the drummer and bassist. Uh, I think it was oh, yeah. fleshed out, fleshed out from a, uh, solo project with studio musicians. I'm pretty sure it's a full lineup now. The, the drummer is great, uh, and the bass playing also adds a lot, and I wish I heard it more. Mm -hmm. um, it's got a cool, almost sub-bassy tone, but I wish it were the notes were clearer. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so that's all true. Um, 
But, you know, the stupid guy question, which is a legitimate <laughs> one, is couldn't you do that while making all of it good? Um, I think you could. I think it'd be a different record, though. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I think um, it would, I think it would not be I don't think it would realize the the sort of conceit at the heart of this in quite mm-hmm. the same way. And it's like I I think also there's there's something interesting about the way emotion works on this record. Um because it doesn't, um, it doesn't feel immediate. It doesn't strike me with like feelings of yearning. It is this sort of removed look at complex emotions, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they're ones that uh, they're ones that I identify with. You know, to be again to be pretentious, it's like as a creative or whatever the fuck you want to call oh, it. Oh God! All right, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry, death metal guy. I am, um, I am. I'm calling in an airstrike on your house. Well, I'm not going to call myself an artist. That's even worse. But (laughs) as a guy that takes part in creative pursuits, you know, I I write and I make music and I do this and that. Yeah. Real life sucks. (laughs) It is miserable to have to work, you know, the majority of your waking hours just to fund small snatches of time where like the things Mm -hmm. you're passionate about can be pursued. Um, and uh, there is a there's a grinding repetition to that, and it becomes extremely discouraging. You know, when you want to do something creative, but you're too exhausted to do it by just sort of the the vicissitudes of everyday life. Um, and there's something I really connect with, and I don't think I've heard a, a metal record kind of discuss that idea. Um, and I like the fact that the negative emotions it explores are things that I can identify with more immediately, just like anxiousness and frustration. You know, as much as I would like to say that I feel blood-curdling rage on a regular basis, I don't. I'm sort of uh, numbed to it just from, you know, getting older and stuff. I think you feel blood-curdling rage on a daily basis. <laughs> um, Maybe a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you get what I'm getting at, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. The, the death metal guy's forehead is vascular. <laughs> um, uh, but so is mine. Um, yeah, my yeah. family, my family was concerned about my forehead veins for a long time. Um, <laughs> but you get what I'm getting at, right? Yeah, Just yeah, 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 yeah. It, yeah. It explores a very different space from what I'm used to, and yeah, there's definitely ways to probably make it more exciting moment to moment. But I think that would sort of run against the whole theory of what this is based on. So. Do we want to get into the other stuff I have in the notes or do we just want to leave it? Because like to some degree, like that, all that shit is important to how I think about this band and might bring up a different perspective on this record. On the other hand, like we've already said a lot and in some sense, basically touched on it. I mean, it's really, because you, you saw the other stuff I wrote. Do you think it's useful here? Um, I, I think that it's, I think really we're sort of revolving around the same idea. And okay. I, think, I, I think really this whole review is just kind of sort of a, a Rorschach test on what you're interested in when it comes to art. Yeah. So let me, so I guess like the more, another way of putting, getting at all this and maybe describing how he, his there's like no doubt that this record is a much more complete statement from the the last one. And as you put it, he's kind of arrived at what he was looking for, mm-hmm. right? 
And maybe, I think we both agree, maybe it'll be another record until it's perfected, but this has really clarified what this band is about. Um, oh, absolutely. This is yeah. this is a, a, a statement. It's not just a statement. This is a band arriving at something that they've spent years and multiple releases trying to find. Yeah. And that it's it's this is a highly original record, which is cool. And it may have, as you say, just a whole new form of playing loud guitar stuff in it. So that's very cool. Um, maybe a way of understanding that uh, would be like, you know, the last record, man, like I, I really liked some parts of it and just other parts bugged the hell out of me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I found, um, and this is a band that, as you put in the notes at, at the beginning, I don't think you said it, but it was very good, you know? These songs really, really sort of shine in that moment of decision when the song refuses its form or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it rejects itself. There's this, yeah. It sets up this kind of uh, stultifying, confining formal parameter and then sort of explodes it, right? Uh, and I, uh, that's a great way of putting it. And I think Imha Tarakat is one of those bands where you can tell there's something significant going on because every time we talk about them, it pushes us back towards this more abstract stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And their music has always sort of raised the question of form. Uh, Like, you know, artists try to work out problems as they work, right? You know, and sometimes those are just very clearly philosophical problems. And I do think this is a problem this guy thinks about on a religious or metaphysical level. Um, and I thought the la- the last record, I thought, provided a very poor answer to that question. <laughs> and I think this, I think on this one, the question is still here, but there's a more coherent, I, and I don't know if I totally agree with the answer, but there's a more coherent answer to it, and I feel like he's changed the entire set of terms, like what they all mean and how he's addressing them. Uh, and that's really interesting. Um, so the last record seems really influenced by like, and maybe the earlier stuff too, really influenced by like anti-cosmic black metal. Um, in the art, there was like a guy throwing a spear. It was basically the Nagelraid cover, but it was a guy throwing a spear into an eye. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, that was two records ago. That was um, that was the first one, Kara Eilas. Um, yeah, really cool cover. Um, and, uh, you know, throwing, throwing the spear into the eye, shattering or breaking the shackles of reality. This is stuff that comes out of the Swedish, uh, Swedish Orthodox bands from Dissection and Overmod and the Dragon Rouge stuff about being, you know, you're, you're trapped in the Ajna plane or whatever, and you've got to release yourself from the shackles of the Demiurge. Um, and... The, and you could really hear it in the music in an interesting way. Uh, so, like like any metal, like any respectable metal guy, right? This guy likes things that are cool, like <laughs> strength and power and force, right? Uh, but he was approaching it in this framework, I don't know, kind of like Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy, but like... There, there's a way of reading it where you just decide that Dionysus is the good guy and Apollo is the bad guy, which is really not that, you know, the, the god of... And you, you come up with this 
opposition between you come up with this notion that like force is sort of opposed to form Mm -hmm. right that these are opposites and that there's like a form that's holding in and confining force which would otherwise be doing badass shit like exploding (laughs) um and so you get this alignment this polarity of like form or order right stasis confinement enervation weakness acceptance right uh and then you start to identify breakdown of form or chaos with like motion energy power creativity strength defiance right and so all the metal terms are in that second column right and all the unmetal terms are in the first right form bad chaos good mm-hmm. um and you know uh this this means like this sort of like uh, musically this translates towards a weird thing. The entire the, you know the the last record we talked about in in so much depth right uh, Sternenberger. I think this tendency was clearest on Sternenberger was that you know it's about bursting stars exploding them or whatever yeah. right. Uh, it's it the record is built around these orgasmic climax moments and it identifies power exclusively with like the release of energy. Whereas I would say what metal is really about is the notion that power creates form. Uh, and that say the moving, the, the riff, the temporal movement of a melody, right? That itself is form. It's just form in motion. It's temporal form. Uh, the, um, it doesn't mean there aren't moments of release, right? But, uh, it's not this, um, it's not this opposition between structure and force, right? It's basically the idea that they're inseparable and that, you know, form delivers force and, uh, transfers it. And, you know, think of like the name, you know, there's a fucking band called Order from Chaos, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And this record had a very chaos from order approach. Uh, and so the thing that frustrated me musically was that, like, it built towards these big climaxes built around tremolids, but because they had to be chaotic, right, they ended up just being riffola, like noodling. Right? So mm-hmm. you'd have these, like, big consonant pleasant intervals and just slew around between them, and they would just lack any definite shape. Uh, And I think that was kind of the point, right? Like, I think that was the idea. They're supposed to be shapeless, limitless, uh, transcendent. But because of that, they're entropic and they just sort of disperse energy. Um, It's just like, imagine just like, you know, the having too many orgasms feeling. (laughs) Right? Oh! And so... And the paradox is that they never fall, they never actually liberate themselves from form because as he's trying to make these con, you know, sort of um, impulsive, convoluted, expressive riffs that don't really work like melodies, he has to fall back on these little motif phrases, like mm-hmm. these little two or three note pulses. And so weirdly, the closer you look at the music, the more geometric it looks. Like, way more than if it was built around seamlessly flowing melody, right? Like, way more geometric than, like, I don't know, you know, like a 
a, a Migla melody or an Odal melody, or certainly an Odal melody or whatever, right? Uh, and so, I don't know. Like, to me, the strongest moments on that record was where he just embraced this more geometric thing and played these bashing punk chords. Um, and it seems like on this record, he's kept the same drama of constraint and liberation, but sort of. Uh, but it's not it's not the same hostility to form. Um, no, no, it's not. I think that I, I I think that it's an expansion on the sort of like metaphysics of the previous stuff. You know, you know stuff like Stern and Burster or the earlier material is um, this sort of like uh, reactive destruction as liberation tendency. Yes, exactly. Whereas. Exactly. Yeah, that, like punk. Basically. Yeah, but now on this new one, to me, it feels like if if if, for instance, wild, um, wandering lead guitar is allegorically the force of change, and we see the you know these leads turning into riffs, turning into the foundational yeah. music, then we see this sort of force and change, not as a matter of destruction, but of as transfiguration as the will accessing reality mm -hmm. and changing it towards something more ideal. Yeah. It's the, yeah, there's like train instead of just dispersal, there's transfer of power transformation. Yeah. Or release of moments of release in these changes of form. Yeah. I, I think that's, so that's really, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And I think you can hear that just in the nuts and bolts songwriting we were talking about earlier it's like he realized that those big melodies tended to be wandering and that it was a limitation. And so he made that limitation the theme of this record. Like the lead melodies wander around until they lock into these actual explosive climaxes with definite musical ideas, right? Um, the geometric thing, he realized that all the songs break down into this kind of... Uh, proto proto melodic geometry and so all of these songs are deliberately built around these like oscillating motifs um and on a bigger picture right there's a really careful attention to the horizontal sequencing of the songs there's it's all about structure and when and how they trigger this decision moment 